Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Today's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights is proudly brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service from AMC Networks with the largest, fastest growing selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural content in the world. And by Chilling Tales' very own 2019 Evil Idol Competition, our fourth annual horror voice acting competition going on now exclusively on our YouTube channel. I'll be back after our first story tonight to tell you a little bit more about Shudder and a special offer for those of you in our listening audience. Until then, settle in, get cozy, prepare to be unsettled. The show's about to begin. <laughs> it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about Antarctic expeditions, dreadful drugs, 
in suppressed situations. I'm Otis Jiry, host of the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its fifth season. My show is available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found. And tonight I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my good friend Steve Taylor, and I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice talents Kyle Stroud, Charles Watley, and A.J. Ferraro. All of them top performing contestants and second round competitors in Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoy their performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. The second round is on now, and the first handful of entries have been posted. But there's plenty more to come, and plenty of time to vote and help decide who advances. So check out our channel, and join in the deliciously dark fun yet to come. Again, you can find CTFDN and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube... Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. Now get your ticket ready, take your seat in our Theater of the Minds, Brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) Our first tale tonight is voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 35, Kyle Stroud. In it, we travel to the early 20th century and find ourselves aboard a ship alongside a sailor that is about to discover there is far more to the icy continents of the Earth than anyone had suspected. Without further ado, from author Mr. Dupin, I present to you Between Ice and Stars. Nineteen oh five, Antarctica. The hull of the ship moaned and groaned under the strain of its frozen enclave. HMS Stargazer and its crew had initially set out into the deep unknown to map uncharted territories, but winter descended quickly upon them, and they found themselves trapped between stars and ice for months. Supplies were running thin, and the captain of the ship, a tall and clean-shaven gentleman by the name of Gerald Northington, had assembled groups of hunters to venture out in search of seal meat. The most recent hunting expedition had yet to return, and Northington was pacing anxiously up and down his quarters. A knock on the door. His first mate, William Ward, called him. He was a gruff man with a strong jawline, harsh mutton chops, and dark eyes, and the hard-boiled personality to match his rough looks. Sir, the hunting party has returned. John Hopkins is dead. The rest are in the bridge of the ship. The two men made their way up to the bridge, where they were greeted by the shivering and mumbling hunting party. The most resolute of the group stood up and took it upon himself to report the happenings of the tragic excursion. We spotted a seal on the other side of the big frozen lake, 
the one near the ship. We tracked it down and we decided to split in order to flank it. We managed to ambush and wound the seal, but John was nowhere to be found. We searched for him across the northern coast of the lake and we eventually found him near the opening of a cavern. The sailor took a moment to regain his composure. It was too late. He was already stiff, clutching in his hands this damnable statue. We did the decent thing and carried him back to the ship so he can rest under British sails. He's now in Dr. Edgar's office getting an autopsy, William the First Mate interjected. All right, gentlemen, my condolences. Get some much-deserved rest now, Captain Northington motioned to the hunting party. With that, Northington and Ward made their way to Dr. Philip Edgar's office. The two men entered the infirmary, a claustrophobic, dreary old room. The dim light from a lone candle revealed neatly shelved flasks and vials, and a collection of leather-bound, worn books stacked upon a chairless desk in the corner of the small room. Hunched over a pull-down table was Dr. Philip Edgar, a tall and lean man with pale white skin and gray eyes. He had a solemn look on his face as he examined John Hopkins' corpse. The body of the deceased sailor had taken a hue of an otherworldly light blue, and his skin was frigid. The sailor bore the singular mark of inexorable insanity. With wide, open eyes and mouth agape, his face carved into a mask of abyssal dread. Most peculiarly, the man was clutching in his hands a crude statuette. The idol was jet black and depicted some anthropomorphic creature in the fetal position. The man's fingers were frozen in place, and removing the object risked breaking the fingers off. So, what is the verdict? The captain asked as calmly as he could muster. He died from a heart attack. Extreme shock and exertion, I imagine. No signs of ill health or struggle. The captain nodded gravely. Put him in the storage bay, and we will bury him first thing in the morning. That night a hazy mist of unrest fell upon the stranded ship. The creaking of the hull, the scattering footsteps, echoes of whispers, and the death of one of their own loomed tall over the crew. Sleep did not come easy. And when it came, it was restless and riddled with nightmares of empty skies and bottomless seas. The sunless morning found HMS Stargazer and its men in a bleak state, feet dragging across the floor and faces stooped low and haggardly. The crew gathered in their dining area for a miserable breakfast of dry bread and olive paste. Then they went on their usual business of general ship upkeep. Captain Northington watched over them as the crew pressed on, the plague of their situation weighing heavy on their slouched shoulders. They were all his responsibility, and he had vowed to return each and every one of them safe to their homes. Last night, he had come to grips with the crushing realization that this was a failing endeavor. With a heavy heart, he ordered two crew members and Dr. Edgar to go and fetch the body of John Hopkins. He was to be buried with the honor and dignity this godforsaken land allowed, in a shallow grave of snow and ice. Northington and the remaining crew had gathered outside, waiting in sepulchral silence to put one of their own under. The minutes passed excruciatingly slow. The members of the crew were throwing sideways glances at each other, growing increasingly uneasy and agitated. Then, Dr. Edgar appeared above deck and made his way to the gathering. With trembling feet, he moved up to his captain. 
leaned in and whispered something in a frail tone. The rest of the crew watched as the captain's face morphed into a grimace of confusion. Show me, he ordered the doctor. The two men left the group and made their way to the storage bay, where John's body rested. The door was open, and the two men sent alongside Dr. Edgar were stood at either side of the doorframe. Sir, this is how we found it, one of them uttered, feeble and pale. The captain entered the storage bay and was greeted by the image that shook his men. The bay was in a state of disarray. Crates were broken, sacks were cut open, barrels were flung across the room, and the floor was ridden with stray apples, potatoes, and an assortment of vegetables, fruits, and meats. Most distressingly, John's body had vanished. After a fruitless search for the body, the crew retreated below deck as nighttime rolled in. Haunted by the mystery of the missing corpse, the sailors laid sleepless on their swaying hammocks, with eyes darting around and peering into the impenetrable darkness. Dr. Edgar in his cabin was sitting up on his bed. The squeaking of the ship was grinding his composure to a pulp, and every time the ship settled, his heart would jump to his throat. But worst of all was the scattering of footsteps echoing unnaturally outside his room as if crabs were skipping their way across the wooden floor. The doctor had his eyes fixed intently on his door, almost expecting it to fly open any minute and ghouls of the deep to storm his room. Then the footsteps abruptly stopped, and the night went silent. Even the moaning of the ship had ceased. The stillness of the night was broken only by hushed voices. The doctor bewildered by the strange whispers, slowly got up and approached the door. He placed his ear upon the wood and listened carefully. Harsh voices speaking in alien and arcane tongues filled his ears. He stood there for what felt like hours, eavesdropping on the maddening serpentine chants, until the whispering stopped and their footsteps trailed off into the distance. Edgar, either by devilish curiosity or divine vigor, grabbed a lantern and opened the door. The fierce darkness outside greeted him. The doctor steeled himself and lit his lantern, the light sending flickering shadows dancing up the walls, and walked down the way he thought the figures outside his door had gone. The narrow corridor seemed to be getting narrower and narrower, and from the cabins on his left and right, Edgar heard no sound. He felt perfectly alone in his bubble of light until the clacking of footsteps echoed on his left. Edgar went completely still, covering his lantern as best he could with his robe. From a corner further down the main corridor, a faint light broke the darkness. At its center, Edgar spotted the cook, who looked at him and sighed in relief. You heard them too, the cook whispered. Edgar nodded. They went this way. Come, the cook urged him on. The two men made their way down the bowels of the ship, which creaked hoarsely under their trembling footsteps. The light of their lanterns illuminated the dark corridors, which seemed to close in on them the further down the abyss they delved. They soldiered on, side by side, their determination to put an end to this trumping their growing fear. When they reached the stairs leading down, they noticed a peculiar clue. Snowy footsteps and puddles of water. The men looked at each other and, without uttering a word, descended further down. They were now at the storage bay which was made up of a large corridor with small rooms, once filled to the brim with supplies on either side. A low, rumbling sound reverberated from the end of the corridor, an almost imperceptible mumbling. 
The men looked down the bay, and they could just make out a quivering candlelight escaping one tiny room. Slowly, they made their way toward it, the sounds of rhythmic chanting getting louder and louder. The door was slightly ajar, and the cook pushed it open. The dully illuminated room was a scene of unfathomable horror. Five sailors were huddled in a circle, raving in unpronounceable tongues. The one at the top of the circle wore a tight leather bag over his head, while the rest sported piercings of teeth across their faces. Behind them, propped up against the wall, was the corpse of John Hopkins. His skin was stretched across his face and his hair was frozen in thick patches. His eyes were open wide and his mouth stuck into a toothless grin. On the floor were scattered symbols drawn in blood and candles that burned with an unholy light. In the middle of the ritualistic patterns was a small black statue of an anthropomorphic creature. The same infernal statuette John Hopkins was found gripping in rigor mortis. The mad sailors had broken off the cadaver's fingers, which were strewn across the room, to rip the idol from his grasp. At once, the sailors turned toward the two intruders and hissed with a rabid fervor, saliva dripping on the floor. The man in the impromptu leather mask raised his arms in the air and shouted in his forbidden language. The other pack members jumped on the cook, scratching and biting in a primal assault, subduing him and dragging him down. A blood-curdling scream escaped the cook's lungs. The doctor, in a haze, turned and ran away, shouting for help. The captain was sitting at his desk, downing a glass of brandy when the shrieks broke the silence of the night. He immediately grabbed the gun sitting at his side and strode out. There he met William Ward, his first mate. "'It's coming from below deck, sir,' Ward spoke, and the two men ran after the sound. "'Stay put, all of you,' Ward shouted at the sailors." who were peeking out of corners trying to discern what was going on. As they were reaching the stairs to the storage bay, the doctor fell on them, his eyes wide with horror. "'Compose yourself, lad. What is going on?' Captain Northington grabbed Edgar's shoulders, trying to shake him out of his daze. The doctor tried to speak, but no words came out. He could only point faintly toward the source of his terror before collapsing on the floor. The captain and his first mate stomped down the stairs, guns shining with fiery justice. The sound of munching and crunching stopped abruptly once the two men approached the candlelit room. A sailor, his clothes ragged and torn, walked out on all fours and stared at them, his eyes bright with madness, before galloping toward them with a wild screech. The captain could only stare with mouth agape at this monstrosity, but Ward found the courage to take a shot which hit the sailors straight between the eyes. Then the first mate moved forward, followed by the still shell-shocked captain. As they got closer, three other men walked out, licking their lips hungrily, blood and gore spilling from their mouths. Ward shot one of them in the torso and aimed for the next one. At the same time, the bulkiest of the sailors made a run for the captain and tackled him to the ground. Northington struggled with the beastly man who bit and clawed at him, the stench of fresh meat emanating from his mouth. Finally, Northington broke free and hit the sailor with the butt of his pistol, again and again until he was hardly recognizable. At the same time, another shot echoed in the storage bay, and with a flash, the last sailor fell. The two men composed themselves and stared at each other with disbelief before moving to the entrance of the room where these demons had come from. 
There, they found the half-eaten, disemboweled corpse of John Hopkins. And behind it, the leather-masked man on his knees, clutching the black statuette, reciting unearthly psalms. The man didn't react to the intrusion, and when a bullet was shot through his skull, he fell backward in silence, his diabolical monologue reaching an abrupt ending. The statuette fell down hard, making a dent on the wooden floor. The two men stood on top of it in silence. The small items seemed to have a strange pull on their psyche. Their minds were filled with blurry visions of cyclopean cities and fallen stars, of shadowy figures, and unearthed tombs. Then, an image rose above the others with crystal clarity, that of a frozen cave throbbing with antediluvian malice. No word was exchanged, for the men knew what they had to do. They had to return the wretched statuette to that abhorrent cave. When they reached the upper deck, an eerie stillness enveloped them. They took tentative steps forward when they felt movement on their side. Ward grabbed a lantern and shone it down the corridor. A group of sailors scattered away at the shining of the light. The captain and his first mate slowly made their way across the deck, Northington holding the statuette in a white-knuckled grip. All around them, they could feel eyes staring at them from the darkness. In the middle of the deck, the doctor, lantern at hand, was waiting for them, fidgeting and jumping at each and every movement and sound. Sir, the men, they have gone mad, the doctor whimpered. Come with us, lad. We are going to put an end to this foulness, the captain said sternly. The three men walked down the main corridor, the possessed sailors surrounding them from the oppressive darkness. Some were moving alongside them, bodies twitching and twisting. Others were speaking in raspy voices, whispering unnatural incantations, while others were simply leering behind a fish-eyed mask. When the group got closer to the stairs, the whole crew had gathered around them, eyes frenzied with hunger and drool dripping from their mouths. The light seemed to keep them at bay, but they were getting more and more confident with each step. Each time a sudden movement was made, the crowd would jolt and get closer. With the captain in the lead, the men pressed on. Edgar, despite the chattering of his teeth, had managed to stay composed up until one sailor called out his mother's name with a grave growl. The doctor shivered and jumped, which caused a ruckus in the crowd, the men wailing and shivering in anticipation. A man broke from the rest and with a feverish yelp jumped for the statuette. Ward plucked him from the air and punched him violently on his nose, which exploded into a bloody mess. The first mate shot a vicious look into the crowd and swung the lantern around, forcing them to recoil back into the shadows. The three men hastened their pace and moved swiftly up the stairs to the top deck, the crew trailing behind them lethargically. They made their way to the bridge and from there they left the ship. The crew, as if stunned by a spell, stopped their pursuit. Amidst the snowfall, their unmoving figures peered down at the three men from atop the ship. William Ward led the group onto the frozen lake toward the cave. The elements raged around them, nature itself bent on preventing passage. The men fought through, pushed on by unnatural and unexplainable forces. Upon reaching the entrance of the cave, Exhausted and beaten by the harsh wind, the pull on their minds had grown far too strong. Unblinking and unfazed by the imminent danger ahead, they entered. The entrance much akin to a maw 
of a great beast with stalactite teeth and jaws made of rock swallowed them whole. The descent into the depths of hell was an arduous one, for the hostile terrain kept slashing and stabbing away at them. At times, they had to move sideways into the claustrophobic corridors, or move crouched close to the ground. The silent arteries of the cavern led them further down, where they could occasionally spot a torn cloth from John's apparel, confirming that they were indeed on the right path. After a particularly narrow passage, the men stepped foot in a gigantic opening. The ceiling of the cavern was shrouded in darkness, and the light of their lanterns didn't even reach the walls of this opening. Led by their captain, the men moved toward the center of this abyss. There, an altar was revealed. Two large sarcophagi, one black and one white, sat in the middle of a perfect circle drawn in crimson powder. An array of books and small statues, much like the one John Hopkins carried, were neatly placed at the feet of the sarcophagi. This was a tomb from out of time, which pulsated with malignant energy. The captain stepped forth and into the circle, letting the statuette drop on the floor. He moved up to the black coffin and observed it closely. The resting place of whatever was within was adorned with elaborate carvings of stars, cities, and runes. What caught the captain's attention, though, were depictions of bipedal creatures. Some were standing in fields, others above the walls of a divine palace. Others were riding chariots, and others were operating machines of technology far advanced. He ran his palm over the intricately engraved lid, feeling the chiseled stone under his skin and letting the wave of Eon's past wash over him. His trance was broken by a loud thud, which echoed like thunder around the cavern. Northington looked over and saw Ward, eyes wide and unblinking, looking into the opened white sarcophagus, its lid resting on the side. In a fit of madness, the first mate had pushed it off. Cracking was heard from within the sarcophagus, and a white talon shot up and stabbed Ward in the chest, retreating back inside and letting the poor man fall to the ground. The two remaining men could only stare, drenched in dread as a white, slim figure rose up from its resting place. The anthropomorphic bipedal creature was standing tall above the men, its head elongated and its eyes whiter than snow. It moved clankily toward the black sarcophagus, and with a swift motion it threw the lid away. Then it waited. A black hand with sharp claws grabbed the edge of the sarcophagus. A beast similar to the first one, but black and bulkier, stood up. It towered over the captain, who could only stare in disbelief as a long claw struck his neck, cleanly cutting flesh and skin. Blood spurted out of the wound as the beast grabbed the captain from the shoulder and lifted him up to meet its gaze. Then it brought its face closer, its maw opening wide. A fleshy tube emerged from the creature's mouth, approaching the newly opened incision. Then it spilled a myriad of black insectoids down the wound, which crawled under Northington's skin and disappeared in his body. The captain's lifeless corpse was dropped to the ground. At that, the doctor started running, his heart pounding heavily against his chest. He ran through jagged grounds and narrow passages, the hard edges tearing at his clothes and skin. Pushed on by fear most primal, he flew up the rough terrain and reached the opening of the cave, his mind in shambles. He stumbled out, 
his knees buckling under the weight of the horror in the cavern and his eyes burning with the travesty that had just unfolded. Outside, no snow was falling and no wind was blowing, as if nature herself cowered away from this damned corner of the earth. The sky above laid bare and starless, a heavy veil of blackness over the pale ice. In his derelict state, Edgar stepped on the ice and started walking aimlessly further down the maw of nothingness. He must have been walking for ages toward the monochromatic horizon when a crack echoed across the air and sent shockwaves down the ice. Then, another cracking sound, and another, and another. When the sounds merged into one crescendo of cacophony, the surface in front of Edgar exploded. When the storm of ice shards settled, a gargantuan head was revealed. A perfectly symmetrical, hairless head, much to the image of man, but distorted and corrupted. Its onyx-black skin seemed to eat away at the surrounding light, while its lidless eyes gleamed a malevolent white. With a creaking sound, its mouth opened. A murky ooze dribbled out, and from the pits of this monstrous creation, a tendril-like appendage appeared. At its top stood a single white eye, with its black-as-midnight iris darting around manically. Suddenly, the infernal eye locked its gaze on Edgar, boring into his very soul like a cyclopean drill. A wave of primal dread washed over the doctor's body, relegating him to mere vermin cowering under an apex predator. He tried to run, but his shattered nerves failed him. He collapsed on his back, his eyes glued to the third eye of this unholy giant staring down at him. Then it turned away from him, uninterested, and rose toward the sky. Edgar's sanity slipped away in an instant, as if a grip on his mind had been loosened and his thoughts all spilled out into a heap of incoherent drivel. His eyes trailed upwards where they got lost into the infinite darkness of the sky, just before the overwhelming tyranny of black was broken by a streak of red, followed by another and another and another, wounds of crimson opening on the sky above, fireballs spiraling toward the wretched earth below. He was calling them down. His children... His outcast angels, he was calling them all down. When Edgar regained his senses, he was in the middle of the glacial lake, snow falling heavily around him and the stars shining brightly from above. He tried to get up, but he slipped back down. Here, grab my hand, Captain Northington shouted through the wind. No, Edgar shouted as he stumbled to his feet. It cannot be, he whispered strands of insanity beginning to slither in his mind. He stood bewildered in front of the once-dead captain, and that's when he saw them. The captain's eyes. They were blank and gray, all the color drained from his irises. Then, with a blink, they went back to normal. Teetering on the brink of madness, Dr. Philip Edgar ran into the snowstorm, his screams echoing in this frozen antechamber of hell until the eternal night claimed him. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs 
or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie dot com. That's A N G I dot com. I hope you enjoyed "Between Ice and Stars," as written by Mr. Dupin and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 35, Kyle Stroud. Up next, we've got another tale for you. This one, courtesy of Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 25, Charles Watley, as written by Peter Frost David. In it, we meet a gentleman who has allowed himself to become a guinea pig in the testing of new, potentially life-changing drugs. While we all know what could go wrong under those certain circumstances, but the real question is, how long will it take to recover when something does? Stay tuned and find out. Before I proceed, however. I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, Shutter, the only video streaming service for horror fans like you and I, and a special offer they've got for those of you listening in tonight. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Shutter is a premium streaming video service from AMC Networks, with the largest, fastest-growing selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural content in the world. They've been super-serving members with the best selection in genre entertainment, covering horror, thrillers, and the supernatural for years. Shutter's expanding library of film, TV series, and originals is available on most streaming devices in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Ireland, and Germany, and you can stream everything they've got to offer. Including great thrillers, horror, and suspense, for just five dollars ninety-nine cents per month, or save yourself nearly fifteen dollars and sign up annually for only fifty-six ninety-nine per year. Shutter has the largest, fastest-growing human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. Think of it as the Netflix for horror. You can count on Shutter.com to keep you guessing with the unexpected. Each and every week, new edge-of-your-seat suspense, spine-tingling thrillers, and shocking horrors are added to their already formidable library. And now, Shudder features the best movie, 2017's One Cut of the Dead, and the best horror movie of 2019, Tigers Are Not Afraid, according to Rotten Tomatoes. And Shudder's uncluttered too. After signing up. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone and iPad, Apple TV, Android devices, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, 
and for our gamers out there, the Xbox One. So, no matter what your device of choice may be, there's no need to go without your fix of the frightening. Shudder's got your back. And best of all, Shudder's content is unparalleled in the genre. With their unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics and blockbuster hits, hits including the hit Creepshow TV series, produced by Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead, you'll never run out of nightmare fuel. We here at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights have been signed up with Shudder for years now, and I can't believe what we were missing out on. Collections like classic slashers take me back to the glory days of suspense, and if you're in the mood for some femme fatales, the vengeance is hers set We'll make certain you'll never underestimate a woman's pension for mayhem again. And of course, there are horror comedies too, so you can enjoy a good laugh at someone else's expense. <laughs> yeah. The members of our production team love the classics, so that alone was worth the price of admission for us. Once you add in all the vast selection of new content and their extensive exclusive library, None of which you'll find on Netflix. There's no reason to ever look anywhere else for our horror film fix. The exclusives they have, and are always adding, are absolutely incredible. Their new exclusive series, The Deadlands, premiering on January 23rd, for example, features a slain Maori warrior, Waku Nukurao, who's sent back to the world of the living to redeem his sins. But the world Waku returns to is ravaged by a breach between that of the living and of the dead, as the spirits of the newly deceased now stalk the land and hunt its inhabitants. Follow Waku and his companion, Mehe, as they work to close the rift and restore balance. The series presents elements of action, adventure, and the supernatural, and was produced with a special focus on the heritage of the indigenous Maori tribe of New Zealand. Catch new episodes, streaming every Thursday. All of this is just the tip of the blood-soaked iceberg. There's so much more lurking inside, just waiting to be discovered. Shudder always has something amazing to look forward to. Besides the incredible creep show, One Cut of the Dead, and Tigers Are Not Afraid... You can check out a ton of other exclusives included with your membership, such as Shudder exclusives Belzebuth and Lizzie or Mandy, starring Nicolas Cage. Or if you're in the mood for something a bit more real, their latest original documentary, Horror Noir, is available to stream right now. If you're anything like me, you won't want to miss any of these films, and you won't have to once you sign up. So, what are you waiting for? All this, and much, much more, is available and at your fear-loving fingertips for just $5.99 a month. And this month, as a listener of our program, you can try Shudder totally free for 30 days and get you started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Included in your membership is access to Shudder's expertly curated collection, which, once again, includes titles like the acclaimed Tigers Are Not Afraid, One Cut of the Dead, 
Revenge in the Creep Show TV series, produced by Greg Nicotero, and the all-new series, The Deadlands, premiering January 23rd. That's right. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and use promo code CTDN to let them know that Otis Jiry and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights sent you. Simple as that. Once again, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com and promo code C-T-D-N as in Chilling Tales, Dark Nights, no F, just C-T-D-N. Thanks so much for listening and for giving Shudder a try this month. And don't forget, when you support our sponsors, you help support this show and your support means a lot to us. Now that we've delivered you a fuel tank of nightmare fuel, courtesy of Shudder, allow me to rekindle my own digital campfire by spinning another terrifying tale. Up next, as written by Peter Frost David and voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 25, Charles Watley, I present to you, if you're armed and at the Glenmont Metro, Please shoot me. If you're armed at the Glenmont Metro, please shoot me. Make it a headshot. Shoot me in the temple, aiming slightly downwards. I need the bullet to travel the shortest possible distance through my brain before it hits my hippocampus. If I'm lucky, the sensation of the gunshot ripping through my skull will only last a few decades. As awful as this sounds, you'll be doing me an immense favor. Death by a headshot, as soon as possible, is vastly better than the alternative. My ordeal started over 10,000 years ago, at 10.15 this morning. I earn extra money by participating in drug trials. I'm a so-called healthy subject who takes experimental drugs to help assess side effects. Once it was a kidney drug. A few times it's been something for blood pressure or cholesterol. This morning, they told me the drug I took was a psychoactive substance intended to accelerate brain function. None of the drugs I had tested so far have ever done anything for me, in the recreational sense. In other words, none of the drugs I've tested have given me a killer buzz or mellowed me out or anything. Maybe I've always ended up the placebo group, but nothing I've tested had affected me at all. Today's drug was different. This shit worked. They gave me a pill at 10.15 and told me to hang out in the waiting room until they called me back for some tests. Only about 30 minutes, the research assistant told me. I flopped onto the waiting room couch and read a few articles from a copy of Psychology Today that was sitting on the coffee table. They hadn't called me back when I finished the Psychology Today, so I picked up a U.S. news and read it cover to cover. Then, I read an old Scientific American. What was taking them so damn long? I sluggishly turned my head to look at the wall clock. It was only 10.23am. I had read all three magazines 
in eight minutes. I remember thinking this was going to be a long day. I was right. The waiting room had a little bookshelf with some hard covers on it. When I stood up to walk to the bookshelf, it felt like my legs barely worked. It's not that they were weak, they were just slow. It took a full minute to stand up off of the couch, and another minute to take two steps to the bookcase. I scanned the old books on the shelf and picked out a copy of Moby Dick. My arms had the same problem as my legs. Just reaching one foot in front of me to grab the book took a long time. I actually got bored just waiting for my hand to reach the spine of the book. I slogged back to the couch and collapsed onto it in a slow-motion fall that reminded me of the low-gravity hops of astronauts on the moon. I opened Moby Dick slowly and began reading. I started with Call Me Ishmael and got as far as Ahab throwing his pipe into the sea, which was all the way to fricking chapter 30, before they called me back. How are you feeling? The research assistant asked me. I feel slow, I said. Actually, it's the other way around. Everything seems slow to you because you're so fast. But my legs, my arms, they're moving in slow motion. Your body seems like it's moving slowly because your brain is fast. Your brain is running 10 or 20 times faster than normal. You are thinking and perceiving reality at an accelerated pace, but your body is still constrained by the laws of biomechanics. Frankly, you're moving much faster than a normal person. She pantomimed a jogging motion, but your brain is running so much faster right now that even your fast walk seems very slow to you. I thought about my slow motion flop onto the waiting room couch. Even if my muscles had slowed down, my body would still react to gravity the same way. But in the waiting room, I even fell in slow motion. Slow muscles couldn't explain why gravity seemed weaker. My brain was going at warp 10. That's how I managed to read three magazines and the first 30 chapters of Moby Dick in 15 minutes. They ran a series of tests on me. The tests were fun. They made me juggle three balls, then four, then six. I had no problem keeping six balls in the air because they seemed to be moving so slowly. It was boring, frankly, waiting for each ball to fall through its arc so I could catch it with my slow-motion hands and toss it back into the air. They threw Cheerios in the air, and I caught them with chopsticks. They dropped a handful of coins, and I counted the total value before they hit the ground. The cognitive tests were less fun, but very illuminating. Finish a 50-word word search. Three seconds. Solve an intricate maze drawn on a poster-sized paper. Two seconds. View a slideshow projected at 10 images per second and answer detailed questions about what I saw. 95% correct. They told me I measured over 250 on the Knopf scale. Apparently, that's deep into the superhuman range of thinking speeds. Then, they sent me home. It'll wear off in a few hours, they said, which will seem like days to you. And try to use the residual effects to get some work done. Catch up on work emails while you're still in high-speed mode. The ride home was horrible. 
it was only three metro stops. And in real world time, it took about 35 minutes. But in my drug accelerated hyper time, it felt like days. Days. Just walking out of the medical research suite to the elevator seemed like it took an hour. I sprinted out of the office, willing my legs to push me faster, but the laws of biomechanics held me prisoner. As accelerated as my brain was, I couldn't do anything to make my legs work faster. The huge disconnect between my body and mind made it extremely difficult to judge how and when to slow down, turn, or rotate my body. I had basically turned into a giant slow-motion spaz. I misjudged my speed and rammed into the wall by the elevator button at a pretty good speed. Even though I could see the wall coming at me, I couldn't make my finger, outstretched to hit the elevator button, move away fast enough and I jammed it against the wall. Hard. The pain was intense. If my brain had been running at a regular speed, it probably only would have hurt for 30 seconds or so. But in my accelerated state, the intense pain seemed to last for half an hour. 45 minutes, maybe. The elevator ride was horrible. It felt like I spent four or five hours just descending seven floors with nothing to look at but the interior of the elevator car. I sprinted to the metro station. I have to admit, this part was almost fun. Even though my body moved at what seemed to me super slow speed, I could still carefully choose how and where to place my feet, swing my arms, and turn my torso. It only took a block or two to getting used to having a brain that ran two dozen times faster than my body. Then, I basically sprint danced the rest of the way, twisting and juking between people on the sidewalk and dodging moving cars with inches, aka minutes, of clearance. I spent an hour in my time frame descending into the subway and running to the platform, endless tedium waiting the six minutes of the red line train to arrive, Although there was more to look at on the metro platform than inside the elevator, it was still intensely boring. I should have stolen that copy of Moby Dick. The red line train roared into the station in slow motion. The normally high-pitched squeal of its brakes frequency was shifted by my high-speed mind to a long, low tone, like a monotone tuba solo. It wasn't just the squealing subway train that was three octaves lower than normal. All sound was slowed to the point of near inaudibility. Voices were gone, shifted below the frequency of my hearing. I did manage to hear a screaming baby on my subway. Her shriek slowed to the sound of whale songs. Sharp sounds like car horns and trucks bouncing over potholes were low, muddied roars like distant thunder. Back at the research office... I could still hear and communicate with the research staff, but now, verbal communication with anyone would be impossible. The effects of the drug were still intensifying. I spent what seemed like days on that red line train. Days listening to the whale song of the screaming baby and the tuba solo of the brakes, where ordinary voices were frequency shifted out of my audio range. Smells didn't seem to be affected. I never became nose-blind to the body odor, the stench of the train's brake, of farts and other smells wafting through the metro car. I finally 
got back to my apartment. Sprinting through my open door and into the front hall at full speed was like a slow, relaxing drift down a lazy river. I was relieved to be home. At least I had stuff I could do there. I picked up the book I was reading, 100 Years of Solitude, and finished it. Despite turning the pages so quickly that I tore many of them, it seemed like most of the time I spent finishing the book was spent on page-turning and not actually reading. Three minutes had passed since I got home. I tried surfing the internet. My god, it takes a long time for computers to boot these days. But it was too frustratingly slow. Hours, seemingly, to load each new page and a fraction of a second to read it. A hundred articles in my newsfeed read and just three more minutes done. I dipped into my pile of yet-to-be-read books and finished two more. Four more minutes had passed. I decided to try to sleep off the remaining effects of the drug. Unfortunately, whatever part of my mind is responsible for perception, the part that's been accelerated to hyperspeeds by the drug, isn't the same as the part that governs sleep. Despite being awake for what I perceived as days, my physical brain still thought it was 1.25 p.m. It was not ready for sleep. Nevertheless, I tried to sleep. I walked to my bedroom, a slow 45-minute drift through my apartment, and flung myself into bed, lazily falling like a feather onto the mattress. I closed my eyes and lay there for hours and hours, ten minutes of reality time before giving up. Sleep would not come. I was facing what was going to feel like days or maybe even weeks of being trapped in a slow-motion prison. So, I took an Ambien. The sensation of the pill and the splashing of water I used to swallow it sliding down my throat was sickening. A lump that blocked my breathing, moving like a slug down my esophagus. I read a book. Ten minutes had passed. I read another. Eighteen minutes since I took the Ambien. I threw the book across the room in disgust at my situation. The book slowly pirouetted and spun through the air like a leaf blowing in the breeze. It hit the wall with a long, faint rumble, the only sound I had heard for what seemed like hours, then drifted to the floor like a flip-flop sinking in a swimming pool. The force of gravity hadn't changed since I took the pill. The laws of physics were the same. It was just my perception of time that had gone wackadoo. This meant I could use the speed things seemed to fall as a way of judging the effects of the drug. Based on how long it took the book to drift to the floor, I estimated the effects of the drug were still intensifying. I read a magazine. I turned on the television. I clearly saw each frame of the video like I was watching a slideshow. Frustrated, I turned the television off. I read some more. The first two books of Churchill's A History of the English-Speaking Peoples. Not exactly a light read. Frankly, I hated it. But given the hours of tedium it would take to go get another book off of my bookshelf, just sitting on the couch and reading Churchill was better. Or at least, less worse. It had now been 35 minutes since I took the Ambien. I lay down on the couch and closed my eyes. Time passed. I inhaled a hours-long process. Time passed. I exhaled for more hours. 
sleep would not come. I needed a new plan. I decided to go back to the office where they gave me the drug. Maybe they would have something that could counteract its effects, or at least something to knock me out until it wore off. I exited my apartment as fast as possible, taking hours in my time frame to do so. I didn't even bother locking the door. It would have taken too long. Down the stairs, it's faster than the elevator if you run, through the lobby, out the front door, and onto the street. These few things felt like a long day at the office. Sprinting down the street, dancing and weaving between pedestrians with what must have looked to them superhuman dexterity. Down the first flight of stairs at the metro, across the landing, another hour. Then onto the second flight of stairs. That's when the Ambien hit me. The Ambien didn't make me sleepy. <laughs> Not at all. Instead, it must have had a severe cross-reaction with the experimental drug I took this morning. I was bounding down the second flight of stairs, moving in slow motion, but still making perceptible progress. Then, wham! Everything stopped. The dull roar of the street and metro noises ceased, replaced by the most perfect silence I've ever experienced. My downwards motion seemed to completely freeze. Before the ambient kicked in, my perception of time was maybe a few hundred times slower than real time. After the ambient took effect, time moved thousands of times slower. Every second seemed like days to me. Even just moving my eyes to focus on a new point was like an impossibly slow scroll across my visual field. Over the course of the afternoon, I learned how to walk, run, and jump when my mind ran hundreds of times faster than my body. But with another four or five orders of magnitude of slowdown caused by the Ambien, body control was almost impossible. I fell on the stairs. Even though I was all but frozen in mid-step, controlling my muscles was impossible. I commanded my foot forwards for hours, then backwards for hours, more when it seemed like I would miss the step, hours attempting to adjust the angle of my ankle, then readjusting when it felt wrong. Despite these efforts, I rolled my ankle on the next step. The pain wasn't at all mitigated by the slowness. Hours of increasing strain on my bent ankle. The nerve signals that send pain into the brain must work differently than the nerves in my ear. Sonic energy was spread out over time, diluted until it was imperceptible. Pain flowed through my brain, undiluted by the change in my perception of time. Hours and hours of increasing weight on my turned ankle turned into hours of increasing pain upon increasing pain. I pitched forwards, my high-speed mind completely unable to control my low-speed body. I drifted downward for days, managing to rotate my torso enough to keep my head from impacting the ground first. I eventually landed on my right shoulder. At first, the impact wasn't even noticeable. Then... 
I felt a slight pressure in my shoulder as it came into contact with the ground. Pressure grew, bringing increasing pain for hour upon hour. My shoulder finally gave out, popping out of its socket with an endless, sickening tug. I came to a stop days later, crumpled onto the ground, staring at the ceiling. The pain in my shoulder still screaming with the intensity of a fresh, violent injury. I had plenty of time to think during that fall. If every second seemed like days to me, then each minute of real-world time would be like years. Even if the drug cleared out of my system in the next two or three hours, this nightmare would seem to last centuries. By the time I hit the ground, I had a plan. I would somehow get to the platform and throw myself in front of a train. I twisted onto my hands and knees, days of my dislocated shoulder crying for relief. I misjudged my rotation and fell onto my back. I tried again, collapsing onto my face as I tried to figure out how to control a body that moved slower than grass grew. Weeks of effort were finally rewarded with success. I stabilized on my hands and knees. If just getting on all fours was this difficult, I figured that walking or running was completely out of the question. So I crawled. I crawled through the metro tunnel. The dumb looks on the faces in the crowd lingered on me for weeks. I crawled under the turnstile and onto the escalator. The escalator spilled the rush hour crowd onto the platform at the same speed a glacier spills ice into the sea. I looked out over the crowded platform during my interminable downward ride. The train status sign said the next train wouldn't arrive for 20 minutes. 20 minutes was like a year to me. I'd have to spend a year on the metro platform waiting to die. I crawled off the escalator, enduring days of stupid expressions on the commuter's faces. I crawled a few feet to a concrete bench and curled up next to it, trying to find a position to lessen the pain on my shoulder. Then my problem with time got worse. Impossibly worse. The massive slowdown on the stairs was just the beginning of the interaction between the experimental drug and the Ambien. It fully hit me while I was curled up by the bench. I blinked. Years of darkness followed. Sound was already gone, and with my blink, sight was gone as well. All that existed was the pain from my fall. My hyper-accelerated mind wasted no time compensating for the lack of sensory input. Voices spoke to me. They sung to me in languages that never existed. Patterns and faces and colors came and went in my mind's eye. I recalled my whole life and imagined living another. I forgot English. I settled into a profound despair. I spoke to God. I became God. I imagined a new universe and brought it to life with my thoughts. Then I did it all again. And again. My eyes opened with geologic slowness. A faint glow. Weeks. A slight light. Weeks. A narrow view of the metro platform, ankles of the commuters near me, and an advertisement on the opposite wall. 
I extracted my phone from my pocket, a project that spanned decades. How can I even explain the boredom? The pain in my shoulder is nothing compared to the boredom. Every thought I can think, I have thought hundreds of times already. The view of ankles and advertisements never changes. Never. The boredom is so intense, so tangible, like a solid object of metal and stone wedged into my skull, inescapable. What are my options? If I crawl and fall onto the tracks without an oncoming train to crush me, I won't die. I'll experience even more pain from the four-foot fall, but I'll most likely be rescued by some do-gooder on the platform and unable to act when the train finally does arrive. My suffering in that scenario will be endless. So I wait for the train, so I can throw myself under it. When it finally hits me, I will experience the pain of being ripped to pieces for centuries until finally the light of life leaves my brain and my experience ends. I've lived hundreds of lifespans at the foot of this bench. I am far older in spirit than any human who has ever lived. Most of my life experience has been a snapshot of pain huddled on the floor of a subway platform with an unchanging view of ankles and advertisements. This post is my plan B. My Hail Mary. My long shot. I've spent lifetimes typing and posting this message in the hope that someone will read it and become convinced that my suffering must end. Someone on this platform right now. Someone who will find the man curled under the bench. The man who crawled down the escalator and kill him as swiftly as possible. A bullet to the temple. If you're armed at the Glenmont Metro, please shoot me. I hope you enjoyed If You're Armed and at the Glenmont Metro, Please Shoot Me, as written by Peter Frost David and voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 25, Charles Watley. Up next, we've got one final sinister story for you. This one written by Rebecca Klingel, better known in horror fiction circles as C.K. Walker. And it's voiced by Evil Idol 2019, contestant number eight, A.J. Ferraro. In it, we meet a young woman reminiscing about her tumultuous childhood. After being drawn back into the past, by sudden developments. As the old saying goes, however, some things are just better left unsaid. Without further ado, I present to you Betsy the Doll. Like most people these days, I had a fucked up childhood. Who doesn't, right? My father took off before I was born and my mother was left to care for me on her own, a skill she was sorely lacking. My mother slipped right back into the drug-addled, party lifestyle she'd enjoyed before I was born, and it soon turned our two-bedroom apartment into an opium den. For the first five years of my life, I walked around in a confused, 
terrifying mist. The smoky air would flood down the hallway from our living room and slip under my bedroom door. It always seemed to linger for days. I know now that my mother wasn't a bad person, just a victim of her addictions. When she did have spare money, she would put food in the house or buy me clothes from Goodwill. The only pieces of furniture I had in my bedroom was a mattress set and a little blue and white toy chest. Not that I had a lot of toys to put it in, of course. Just the three I had gotten for birthdays. One was an art kit, one was a red wagon, and the last, my pride and joy, was a doll named Betsy. Betsy was my best friend. We would have imaginary tea parties together, sleep together, and even take baths together. Sometimes I even remember her voice. When I thought back on my conversations with the doll in adulthood, I realized that I was likely suffering from delusions, thanks to the always present butts of smoke that laid claim to the dingy hallways and drafty bedrooms of our small apartment. Still, I remember the sound of her voice. A pleasant, tingling lilt that was almost always coupled with a raucous giggle. I also remember the things that she said to me, and the things she wanted me to do. She asked me to steal, usually food or pens and pencils. She wanted me to bring her forks and knives, and hit the bad man who slept on our couch. It was always something, and I would always get in trouble. But she wouldn't. When I told my mother who had put me up to these games, she would scoff and shake her head. She never believed me. Adults never do. Around my sixth birthday, I asked my mother for a birthday party. I wanted to invite the mean girls from school and serve them cake and ice cream to make them like me. I remember standing in the kitchen that day with such hopes, having just asked the most important question of my entire life. The glass bottle of Coca-Cola I held was shaking in my nervous hands. I waited with bated breath as my mother continued putting groceries away, almost as if she hadn't heard me. But I knew she had. Finally, just as I had failed a second time to muster the courage to repeat my question, she turned around and gave me a flippant shake of her head. A birthday party? Laura, that's ridiculous. I can't afford to feed 15 children that aren't even mine. Hell, I can barely afford to feed you. You eat like an elephant, especially for a girl your size. Or, I'm sorry, Betsy does. There's barely anything left for me to eat around here, much less a classroom of other people's brats. My face fell as she shook her head, mumbled something else under her breath, and stumbled off into the living room. I heard the music go up then, as more people walked in the door. Some left, some stayed. I never knew them either way. It simply wasn't fair. My mother threw parties all the time. What about me? I was a kid. All my friends had birthday parties. And now the mean girls at school would know I was too poor to have one, and they would tease me even more. I felt tears start to well in the corners of my eyes. And I choked back a sob while I ran to my room and slammed the door behind me. Betsy was lying on the bed and smiling. She was always smiling. 
Usually it made me feel better. But today, it just made me angry. She just kept staring at me, smiling. She was going to tell me to do something bad again. This was why Mother wouldn't throw me a birthday party. It was because of all the trouble I got into because of her. This was her fault. Betsy didn't have to go to school, and Betsy never got in trouble like I did. And in my young mind, I truly believed it was the doll, not my mother, who was to blame for everything. I snapped then. I screamed in indignant rage, and I threw the bottle as hard as I could at the bed. It hit Betsy on the forehead, and she fell on the floor. Good. I picked up the bottle, and I hit her again. And again. I thought I heard her laugh, and I hit her harder. Then I laughed. When my rage was spent, I dragged Betsy to my toy chest and threw her in. I slammed it shut and kicked the chest against the wall. I never wanted to see Betsy again. Ever. Never owned another doll after Betsy. About a week later, the police came, and two nice ladies took me to live in a new home in a new state, with food and toys and no drugs. The trunk went into storage and the wagon disappeared. I never saw my mother again. As I got older, my foster parents admitted she was in jail, doing 25 years. That was fine with me. I felt nothing for her anyway. I still had nightmares because of my life with that woman. But then, slowly, I began to heal. I focused on doing well in school, and I ignored my mother's letters from prison. She reached out to me several times in my 20s as well but I always declined her calls. That is, until this morning. I'm 30 now, with my own children and a loving, honest husband. I have a beautiful house, two dogs, and a career as a social worker trying to make a difference for kids who had it bad like me. I'm happy. I'm steady. And I'm content. So when I got a voicemail from my mother informing me she had been paroled and that she wished to speak, I decided to let her say her piece. Since the kids were home from school, I went out into our shed in the backyard to return my mother's call. The shed was the children's domain, and they used it to play in the summer. I sat on my old toy chest, which was currently being used as a tea party table, and dialed the number she had left me. Three rings. Hello? Laura? Hello, Mother. How are you? Oh, Laura, thank you for speaking to me. I know you have your own life now and a family. I would love to meet them someday. I just wanted to tell you how sorry I am for everything. Mother, you are not meeting my kids ever. And since you called me, I'm going to say what I've needed to say for years. The opium, the heroin, they destroyed you. And the worst of it is that you almost took me down with you. I was five. I was no home for a child. Honestly, surprised it took you so long to get caught. Laura, I know how it seems. But I honestly know nothing Look, 
It hardly matters. And I do understand why you would feel that way. Why you would hate me and not want me to meet your little ones. I learned a lot about forgiveness while I was away and just... Oh, Laura. I am so sorry about Betsy. Betsy? I paused, confused. Why would you care about her? I know, Laura. Believe me, I do. It was all my fault. The drugs, the partying. And Betsy. Oh, God, if I'd only paid attention. If I'd only known. She's gone. And it's because of me. As my mother began to cry, I tapped my fingers on the toy box impatiently. The drugs had clearly fried her brain. Mother, I sighed. Why are you talking about Betsy? And why do you even care? I know where Betsy is. Right underneath me. What are you talking about, Laura? Oh God, where is she? I shifted uncomfortably. Well, Betsy's in the trunk where she's always been. There was a beat of stunning silence. What do you mean your sister's in the trunk? Sister? (laughs) What the hell are you talking about? Back on drugs so soon? That's a record, even for you. Betsy's a goddamn doll. I locked her in my toy box a few days before you got arrested for possession. Laura? Oh, God, no. No, Laura. What have you done? I wasn't arrested because of the drugs, Laura. I was arrested because of Betsy's disappearance. You always called her your little doll, but (laughs) we thought you knew. Oh, God. We thought you knew. Laura. No. What have you done to my baby? My mind had gone blank. And with no emotion, I set the phone down next to me and stood up. I could hear the muffled sound of my mother's anguished cries and feel the dark clutch of possibility in my own chest. Memories were stirring in the back of my mind, threatening to flood forward into my consciousness. They pushed against a door in my mind that had been locked so tightly for so long I had forgotten it was even there. Was it even possible? Could the trauma and the opium have really led me to believe that a small child was actually a doll? Begging for food and utensils to eat with? Asking me to protect her from the bad man? No. I slowly turned around and brought my eyes down to the makeshift tea party table. Surely it was too small. You couldn't fit a person in there. You couldn't. But then, what about a very small, starving, emaciated child? What about her? Would she fit? Would an investigator even bother looking for a person in this chest? I knew I wouldn't. It was just too small. And I was sure we had opened the toy box at some point over the years. Hadn't we? 
or had something swimming in the dark recesses of my memories always stopped me. I couldn't remember ever seeing it open. I knelt down to the ground and opened the clasps. It would be better to not look. After all that I had overcome, this new life that I had earned for myself, it could all be undone by opening this toy box. I shouldn't open it. I should throw it in a landfill and forget it ever existed. I should not look inside. I opened the chest. I never had it all. My mother never could afford to buy me one. Never had a wagon either, for that matter. But I did have a toy box. A pretty blue and white toy box. And when I was five, I beat my little sister to death and put her in it. I hope you enjoyed Betsy the Doll, as written by Rebecca Klingle, also known as C.K. Walker, and voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number eight, A.J. Ferraro. Just a reminder, all of tonight's performances were featured in the second round of this year's 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition, hosted on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel now, and running the next several months. If you enjoyed the performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. Again, you can find CTFDN and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. We'd also like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Shudder, for their support of this show. Don't forget, this month, as a listener of our program, you can try Shudder totally free for 30 days. That's right. To get started, go to Shudder.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com. And use promo code CTDN to let them know that Otis Gyrie and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights sent you. Once again, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com and enter promo code CTDN. As in Chilling Tales, Dark Nights. No F, just CTDN. Using that promo code lets the kind folks at Shudder know that Otis and the team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights sent you. Thanks again so much for listening and for giving our Shudder a try this month. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help support this program 
and that means a lot to us. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn out the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn about more of our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Otis Jack. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. If you're looking for some fresh tales while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, Otis Jiry's Horror Storytime, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Or search for my podcast, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, where I perform four brand new tales every episode. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like to perform? We take submissions. Email us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tone considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well. To get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing. Make a kind word or a request. Don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.